0: For the last few weeks, we've been, we've been talking about Jesus after the resurrection. We had Resurrection Sunday um, four weeks ago, and uh, we've just been going through the Gospels and looking at what Jesus had to say after the resurrection. Because so often, uh, we want to talk about Jesus, and when we start talking about Jesus, we only want to talk about, uh, you know, kind of, what did Jesus teach, what was the moral teachings, what was the ethics, and things like that, or what were the cool parables that he told, because parables are always uh, fun to talk about. But to actually get into, what did Jesus say after he was raised from the dead, um, that's a little bit different. In the last few weeks, we've talked about the subjects of fear, faith. The authority of scripture and, and what that means for our peace. This morning I want to talk a little bit more about um, what the resurrection is. What did it mean for Jesus to be raised from the dead? How did he explain it to his disciples? Because he, he actually has an explanation uh, in Luke. And I want, to, I want to take our time and look there this morning. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, in chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. The very last few verses of the book of Luke. Um, and so if you're looking for it, you get to John. Just go back a couple pages and you'll wind up in Luke. Luke chapter 24, and verse 36. Uh, the disciples have just heard about the resurrection. The two disciples who are walking on their way uh, to Emmaus... Jesus has actually met them and encountered them. And although we don't have an accurate record of what it was, we know that he also met with Simon Peter. And so these two disciples, they run back to talk to the, the 11, uh, the apostles, and, and, and the people that are gathered there. And Simon has already been there to tell them what's going on. And in verse, verse 36, as they, the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, let me ask you, uh, wouldn't you? I mean, you're sitting there having a conversation about Jesus who was dead. Now he's raised from the dead. And he stands up in the middle of the group. You know, he just kind of stands there and says, peace to you. And they all whoa. And their first knee jerk reaction is they thought he was a spirit. And he said, why are you troubled? There's that fear. Why do, your doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Kind of looking at where's your faith? And then he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, or they were still struggling despite their joy, Um, He said to them, "'Have you anything here to eat?' Yet again, proof that Jesus is Baptist. First thing he does is ask about food. They gave him a, a piece of broiled fish, and they took it, and he ate before them. And then he said to them, "'These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled.' Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them. Thus it is written. That the Christ should suffer. And on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city. Until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The disciples, when Jesus shows up, they think he's a ghost, because let's be perfectly honest, and we've talked about this again and again, a resurrection is a hard thing to get your head around. Now we, living 2,000 years later, having heard the profession, the Christianity being so pervasive in Western society, we kind of take it for granted. All right, yeah, Jesus was resurrected, you know. How do you know Jesus was resurrected? Well, every year we have Easter break. Um, you know, uh, we, when we really, really look at this, um, we need to understand that this is hard to get your head around. This was hard for the disciples to get around. Um, this is not something that in our experience is reasonable, all right? It's not something that is in our experience is even possible. And, and the apostle or, or Luke goes, goes into such depth in explaining the situation of the resurrection. And he kind of uh, unpacks it. He has Jesus unpacking it for us. Because I think that we tend to either just kind of not think about the resurrection. Or try to get it into fit into some kind of paradigm that we can understand. Now there's no end of songs and poems and things that kind of try to talk about the resurrection. One of my favorite uh, songs um, written in recent years is by, by Andrew Peterson. And it talks about how the body of, of Jesus comes back to life on that, that morning. And it's, it's a really great um, song. But the fact of the matter is we don't know how it happened. Right? We, we don't know how a body that, that went through all the processes that a dead body goes through... Uh, suddenly came back to life. And anybody who tells you they do understand how it works um, has probably never had to see a dead body after a couple of days. Now, Dr. DeLisi went through medical school. He got to work on cadavers. Um, Cadavers do not come back to life. This is not how it works. There's things that happen in the cellular structure of a body in those first couple of days that should be irreversible. There's builds up of gases, the digestive tract, the bacteria that's in the the intestines, all these things. The body is this amazing, marvelous, miraculous group of atoms working together that really honestly has no reason to be alive but is. And when it dies, it dies. And we're not talking about, oh, well, he was on the operating table for a few minutes and they did CPR and he woke up. Oh, he came back from the dead. Three days is a long time for a body to be dead. We don't know how he did it. And so when Jesus shows up, and keep in mind that the last time these guys saw Jesus, all right, the last time that John saw Jesus, Jesus was telling him to take care of Mary, Jesus' mother. Um, to You just go home and take her home. And he was bleeding and bruised and crucified and everything that was going on. He was a, a, a mess. All right? Physically, he was a mess. And, and all these guys saw Jesus led away. They probably, from a distance, watched him being paraded toward the, cruci- to the crucifixion. A man so beaten and so broken that he couldn't even carry the cross beam of his own cross. They had to have somebody else carry it. I mean, he wasn't carrying. I know, I know that in every picture and movie he's carrying a full cross. But that's not how, what they, how the Romans did it. They made them carry the cross beam. The upright piece was already in the ground. Um, and then they would, they would mount them to that. Um, And so you get more of the, you know, Jesus would have had to kind of carry it on his shoulders like a um, kind of like carrying two by fours or something. Um, He couldn't even do that. I mean, he was completely destroyed. And now here he is. Asking for food. So getting our head around the resurrection, it's a hard concept. It's not reasonable. It's not possible. And yet. Um, Luke goes into such detail to describe Jesus' interaction with them. Luke and John are the only ones that really go into depth with this. The, Matthew and Mark, they just kind of say, Jesus was raised from the dead, he showed up to some people, wasn't that cool? Luke and John, they go into this whole elaborate conversation about food and eating, and, uh, and John he actually goes and meets them while they're fishing, there's, there's all this stuff going on. Why is Luke doing this? Well, you need to understand a little bit about Luke's audience. Uh, Luke is not writing to Jewish believers like Matthew was, um, uh, or or early believers like Mark was. Luke is writing to um, the Greco-Roman world. The gospel of Luke is pretty much the gospel to the whole world, and there's a lot that goes into that, and we spent about a year and a half, almost two years, talking about Luke several years ago, um, about how how... It is crafted specifically to to speak to Jews and Gentiles alike and show that all of human history points to Jesus. And one of the things that you need to understand about that world, especially at this time frame, uh, around 30 A.D., is that the Roman Empire was ruled by a group called the Julian Claudians. You know most of their names. Uh, Augustus Caesar, uh, Cal- uh, Caligula, Nero, Claudius. You know those names if you, you uh, survived Western Civ in high school. Um, and and they had this thing. when When Julius Caesar was killed, when he was assassinated in 44 B.C., um, his nephew, who was his adopted son, because Romans are weird, um, uh, Octavius became his successor. Um, people say, well, then he ruled Rome. There's politics of that. I won't get into all what it meant and all those things. But um, Octavius, one of the first things that Octavius did when he became Caesar Augustus was to declare that, that Julius Caesar um, had become a god. He had been deified. Uh, in fact, at the ba- right around the time of the Battle of Actium, which is when uh, Augustus kind of consolidated his power in 27 BC, he had a temple dedicated to Deus Julius, right? the divine Julius, the divine Julius Caesar. Um, and it's one of the only temples uh, in Rome that was dedicated to a comet, because he believed that when Julius Caesar died, Octavius claimed that he looked up into the sky. Augustus claimed he looked up in the sky and he saw a comet streak across the the sky, and that was how he knew that his that Julius Caesar had ascended to become a god. And and when Augustus died, extraordinarily, I know this comes as a very big surprise. Uh, The Roman Senate said, oh, we saw this. And Augustus ascended and he became a god. And then they put Caligula in. Caligula was nuts, so they killed him. Um, uh, But, uh, and then... um, and they got Claudius, and, and Claudius was old, so he didn't survive long. Oh, wait, I missed Tiberius. So then Tiberius died, he became, he, had, he died, they said he was a god, then Caligula died, they kind of pretended he never lived, then Claudius came, and Claudius died, and they said he was god, then Nero came, and he was kind of bad, so they killed him, they said he didn't become a god. So it's kind of, you know, you get to be a god if you're a good guy, basically. Um, but uh, Tiberius was, was emperor at this time, Right, Augustus's successor, and he had deified Augustus, and Tiberius fully expected when he died that he would be deified. And so, when Luke is writing his gospel in this time period, you know Jesus was crucified at the time period at the time of Tiberius, um, and then Luke is probably writing this gospel sometime in the reign of Claudius or Nero. We don't really know when he actually puts it down. But you've got this progression of these deified emperors. They die. They become a deity. And Luke wants to make it very, very clear that Jesus was already divine. He didn't die and then ascend to be a deity. Jesus died and then he was raised from the dead and he was just as much Jesus then As he was before the resurrection. See, that's why they go through this whole process. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, I know you're afraid, so come, touch and see. All right, and that that line, when he says that, touch and see, the word touch is actually feel, palpate, move. Be be willing to kind of make sure you can get a grip on me. Make sure that you actually are saying, make sure you understand I'm not a spirit. I'm not a deified emperor. I'm not passed over until the other realm. I'm Jesus. I'm the one you knew. I'm the one that you talked with. I'm the one who taught you. Nothing has changed about me except that little thing that I died and came back to life. And, and he's enforcing, Luke is making sure we understand that there's a difference between the powers of the world, the power of Caesar the power of Rome, and the power of God. They're not in conflict because there is no conflict between one who is supposedly deified because somebody said he was and somebody who's already divine and just comes back to life. How could there be conflict between those two authorities? How could there be any issue, any, any question, which one is superior? Jesus was already divine. And as hard as that is to get around our head, one of the things that we have to understand about the resurrection of Jesus is that it was fully within his power as the Son of God to be raised from the dead. As extraordinary as it is for us, because it is completely and utterly unreasonable for us to believe that somebody could be raised from the dead, it was, and I kind of want to make a point of this, No big deal for Jesus. The giver of life. The sustainer of the world. This, by the way, is the reason that Paul... Describes Jesus this way. That he is the, the maker of all things, the creator. That's why John calls him the Alpha and the Omega. Somebody who could be raised from the dead the way that Jesus was raised from the dead without some, without, I mean, Jesus raised people from the dead, right? But those people didn't raise themselves from the dead. Jesus raised himself from the dead. That marked him out as being divine. As as superior in every way, shape, and form to any other authority that they might face. And because he did it without some miracle worker walking up to the empty tomb and chanting a bunch of stuff. Because he did it on his own and just kind of kicked that rock out of the way and walked out. Because Jesus could choose to be wherever he wanted to be whenever he wanted to be there. There was something extraordinary about him that Julius Caesar could never compete with. So it's a hard concept to get our head around because it's a divine concept. It is an attribute of God to be alive. And so Jesus didn't choose to be raised from the dead. Jesus actually had to choose to die for a little while. But secondly, the second thing that he brings up, yes, it's a divine thing. It's a hard concept to get around. But the second thing that Jesus points out is that it's not a new thing. It's not something he suddenly thought up at the moment. You know, Jesus is like, you know, this whole teaching thing's not working, feeding 5,000, not working, walking on the water, just not getting the results I want. What should I do? Ah! This is something that uh, John describes him as the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world this was something that Jesus uh, that God uh, was planning it was not something new and Jesus says to them he says it says these are the words in verse forty four. These are the words that I my words that I spoke to you are still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those are the three categories of the Jewish law the Torah, the Navim, the Ketuvim, uh, the law, the prophets, and the and the writings or the Psalms. Um, and he says, Everything about the Hebrew Bible points to me. In in the law, there's so much in the law, the sacrificial system in the law uh points to uh his death, all right? But how does a god die without taking on new life? Um, the, the priesthood points to him. Uh, the, the, the Everything about the message of the, of the commandments points to him. The righteousness of God points to him. The fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and the redemption of Adam and Eve, it points to him. The giving of Seth, uh, the third son, after Cain has killed Abel, it points to him. Noah and the ark, man, God saving mankind through extraordinary means, life out of death, it points to him. And then Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, there's actually a line where it says, uh, where God says, I will raise a prophet like Moses. And then Moses dies in Deuteronomy chapter 34, because, you know. And so for there to be this greater prophet, this prophet must exceed what Moses does. Well, how will this prophet exceed what Moses does? By fulfilling the law. In the prophets, there's Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. By his wounds we are healed. And, and it talks about how uh, he, will, he will be the forgiveness of sins. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of the dry bones, that God will bring new life to dead things. In the writings, in the Psalms, of course, in the Psalms, Psalm 22 uh, is a messianic psalm. So much of the Psalms is structured around the potential of Messiah. And Jesus' point is not only that, that it's a divine thing, but it's a, it's a Bible thing. This is what all of the scriptures were building to. Now, I'm an Old Testament guy. I love the Old Testament. I went down and met some of my professors uh, on Monday, hung out with the head of my program. And I said to him, I said, I said uh, well, I love this. They couldn't believe I was taking all these Old Testament classes at once. I was like, I love the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like, this is, and I, you know, my joke, David is my homeboy. Um, uh, and uh, my, one, my, my Hebrew professor uh, laughed at me because um, he thought that was humorous that I used the word homeboy um but uh well no one should use that word it ran out in like 1998 but um you know but i love the old testament but the reason i love the old testament isn't just because it's got all kinds of cool history in it not just because it's got all these wild things that are happening but because it points to jesus so Jesus makes the point that this is, the resurrection is a divine thing. This is something that marks him out as divine. Not became divine, but always has been divine. And secondly, this is not a new thing. This is something that God had been planning forever. It was built into the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Doc mentioned Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. Um, built into the Scriptures. That it's all about the resurrected Jesus. And I want to make a point. If you're writing notes down there, don't say that the Hebrew Bible is all about Jesus. It's about the resurrected Jesus. If all we get is Jesus is a nice moral teacher who taught, good, you know, taught us how to love one another and all that stuff, you know, um, th- what's the point? It's got to be about the resurrected Jesus. But then, look at what he says in verse 47. Verse 46, is said and said to them, Jesus sums up the Old Testament this way, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, uh, probably relying on Jonah there, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The resurrection is a divine thing. The resurrection is not a new thing, but the resurrection is also a forgiveness thing. There is no true repentance for sin if Christ is not raised from the dead. There is no true forgiveness of our sins if the resurrection was just that Jesus was asleep for a couple of days. Or that somebody else got crucified in his place and then he showed up. Or that the disciples snuck in and stole his body and, and then claimed to have known him. Which is one of the most absurd arguments I've ever heard. I don't know if you've ever run into this where somebody's like, it's somebody's argument. well, there's no proof that Jesus raised from the dead. Are you kidding me? you telling me that this bunch of people, not just the 11 apostles, but the whole haggle of them, a gaggle of them, that all these disciples, they were willing to go to their death they were willing to face uh, opposition and persecution um, because they pulled off the greatest prank in the history of the world and didn't want to tell anybody, "Come on." Not a single one of them went, <laughs> The resurrection of Jesus is an offer, the true context of repentance. What is the point? of me grieving over my sin if there is not forgiveness in an eternal and extraordinary new life kind of way? What is the the point of doing anything about my sin if it's just about accumulating enough good points that they balance out my bad points? I'm not a particularly horrible person, but there is no way I'm pulling that off. I mean, honestly, seriously, I do way more wrong things than I do right things on a regular basis. I don't do it on purpose, but it just happens. After all, I drive in New England. <laughs> it's a repentance thing. It's a, it's a complete thing. It's a, a message thing. It's a thing to be celebrated and proclaimed. And honestly... If we really believe that that the divine, the Son of God, offered his life and then took his life up again, fulfilling all of the scriptures, every expectation of the scriptures, and like I mentioned with Luke, not just the expectations of all scriptures, but the expectation of all of human history, building up to Jesus. If we really believe that that has occurred and that forgiveness of sins through repentance is available because of that, Because of him, why would we hesitate to proclaim it, to live it? What challenge could exist that could ever get us to suppress the reality of the resurrection if it's really a reality in our lives? Ultimately, if we look at this as a hard concept. We can't understand it. It's something that's built into the scriptures. It is the, the sole means of forgiveness and repentance. Ultimately, what we have to come down to is this. Practical side of this. Is that God's. I don't want to use the words longing or desire, but God's. Nature is transcendently forgiving, compassionate, steadfast love. That when we look at the resurrection, what do we see? And and I I gotta ask this question, and you, you need to ask it of yourself. When I look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, do I see only the means of the forgiveness of my sins, the means of getting me uh, into righteousness, or do I see the extraordinary, transcendent awesomeness and forgiveness and love and hesed and compassion of our God? Because this, he says, will be. Filled, it will be completed. This will be extraordinary because I am sending the promise of my Father in verse 49. This is what God is working toward. This is what God is doing. This is the thing that will transform you and those around you. Can we ever truly comprehend the resurrection? I don't think we ever can. I don't think we could ever get to a point where we're like, yep, figured it out. Can we ever comprehend the love of God? And somebody says to me, "Well, I don't know how God could love somebody like me." Being a compassionate and loving person, I go, "Yep. But I don't see how he could love me either." Or any of us. And yet he does. And not just love in a casual way, but love in a from the foundations of the world prepared to lay down his life and then take it up again way. What do you see? What do you feel when Jesus says to you, touch and see? Is the resurrection just an idea or is it a transcendent idea Often befuddling mystery that calls you to walk with Him, calls you to extraordinary things that exceed your own perception of your ability, pushes you beyond your limitations, pushes you to be more faithful. Because he is faithful. Pushes you to be more loving and sacrificial. Because he is loving and sacrificial. Pushes you to live a new life. Because that is what he has given to you. Does what God offers to you. Truly transcend. All that you could understand. About him. Or do you just have a nice, convenient pocket watch God that you can pull out when you need? But you don't want mystery. You don't want answers. You want answers. You don't want questions. You want accommodation. You don't want resurrection. You want comfort. You don't want transcendent challenge. Who is the resurrected Christ to you? Because if he's anything short of the divine one, the sum total of scripture, the sole source of repentance and forgiveness, he falls so extraordinarily short of who Jesus is. Would you join me in a word of prayer?